Before we dive into today's episode, a brief message from our sponsor, Medevolve, can give you insights into your practice's financial performance and outcomes. Medevolve helps doctors answer important revenue questions such as, where am I losing money and why? What is the value of my accounts receivable? When will I get paid? It's a great question. And how many claims have not been worked? The right analytic solution tells an easy to understand story. And an easy to understand story translates into revenue for your practice and a healthy balance sheet. Medevolve's Power Analytics gives you the answers you need to act. Start making healthcare business decisions based on data. Medevolve helps physicians' practices reduce their cost to collect and increase efficiency with data-driven technology. To have this great company help you work smarter, reduce your cost to collect and get paid on time, find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Medevolve, that's spelled M-E-D-E-V-O-L-V-E. The link is also in the description of this show. Uh, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, where we speak for more than a minute, and eventually I'm going to have to change the name of the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice, and today I am truly excited to bring on board Rick Collins to speak today about the law, anabolic steroids, and performance-enhancing drugs, including human growth hormone. And we may we may quibble with how these are characterized, but I have no doubt at the end of this conversation, you will have learned a great deal. So a little bit of background. Rick Collins is a New York lawyer and former prosecutor who has built a nationwide practice in the area of health, wellness, and fitness. He's based out of New York as a partner in the law firm of Collins, Gann, McCloskey, and Barry. And he's defended a gazillion individuals and corporate entities against investigations, administrative or disciplinary proceedings, as well as criminal prosecutions for the allegations of unlawful marketing distribution or prescription of anabolic steroids, human growth hormone, or other supposed non-compliant dietary supplements. Uh, hands down, he is internationally recognized as a legal authority in the field of testosterone and other anabolic steroids, as well as performance-enhancing substances. He has written extensively uh, on this topic. He serves as legal counsel to the International Society of Sports Nutrition and the International Federation of bodybuilders, my old job. Um, <laughs> Rick received his uh, law degree from Hofstra University School of Law and recently served as president of the Nassau County Bar Association. Uh, at the end of the day, we're talking about a CV. Um, in fact, we could go an hour with uh, his uh, CV, but let me just dive in. And uh, by the way, um, Rick, thanks for joining us and welcome. And I'm gonna start off with I put together like a short paragraph. You've been a bodybuilder for years. You then became a lawyer. Doctors prescribe all types of medications. Performance enhancing medications are generally prescribed by doctors, our audience. Performance enhancing is more than just excelling at a sport. It's about feeling better, looking better, recovering faster, feeling youthful. Doctors who prescribe these medications need to understand what the law allows and does not. Welcome, Rick Collins. Thanks for joining us. Jeff, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time today on two classes of compounds. I'm sure we could chat about more, but those would include 
human growth hormone and anabolic uh, steroids. And um, why don't you give us your background? How the hell did you get into this? I, I'm absolutely positive <laughs> you didn't wake up one day when you were starting undergraduate and said, you know what, I'm going to be the steroid lawyer. How do I do that? No, Jeff, timing is everything, right? Um, I was a prosecutor um, when I came out of law school and then opened my own practice uh, with some partners in 1990, which happened to be the same year that Congress took action to schedule testosterone and anabolic steroids as controlled substances under Schedule 3. So timing is everything in life. Prior to that, in, in sort of my avocation, I had been a personal trainer and a uh, competitive bodybuilder into health and fitness and nutrition. And so that was sort of my my passion outside of my career. Uh, my career was, was really in trial law and uh, litigation. And when the uh, when Congress took action to schedule steroids, I started getting phone calls as a criminal defense lawyer from folks who suddenly were being either investigated or charged. These included individuals. They also included physicians and others who suddenly didn't really understand what the change in the law meant in terms of practical considerations for them. And so I wound up getting more and more involved in bridging the gap between the medical and legal community on the one side and the people who were involved with anabolic steroids, growth hormone, testosterone, and other drugs that now had become in some way regulated or controlled by mm -hmm. the federal government and many states. And so um, my practice began to morph into that specific category. And it's really the bulk of what I do now. Um, I've represented countless individuals, corporations, um, lawyers, physicians, you name it, on matters in this area. I also represent a lot of dietary supplement companies, particularly those in sports nutrition on regulatory issues. So, I, look, it's, I was able to combine my vocation and my avocation in a way that um, I love what I do. I wake up Monday morning. I, I love going to work. And, uh, you know, maybe not everybody can say that. So I feel very blessed. Well, do you say TGIM, thank God it's Monday? <laughs> Some people do. I, you know, every day above ground is a good day, my friend. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel the same way. So um, let's talk about controlled substances because mm -hmm. most doctors understand controlled substances are defined as those subject to abuse. And I'm using the word abuse uh, deliberately. Frequently, <laughs> these compounds are addictive. What do I right. mean by addictive? They produce less and less of the desired effect at higher and higher doses with more and more side effects. And uh, we can we can quibble as to whether all Schedule One and Schedule Two compounds actually have those characteristics, but I think that was the intent behind the Controlled Substances Act. And I, I was just reviewing a DEA doc document, and it says, that, and I'm just quoting right here, it says addiction is defined as compulsive drug-seeking behavior Mm -hmm. Where acquiring and using a drug becomes the most important activity in a user's life. The uh, definition implies loss of control regarding drug use, and the person with a substance use uh, disorder will continue to use a drug despite serious medical or social consequences. And, and then they go on to say um, that the Controlled Substances Act places all substances uh, which are in some manner regulated under existing federal law into one of five schedules based on the potential 
for abuse, but weirdly enough, they don't really define abuse. <laughs> so I guess the, the question is, if abuse isn't defined, I'm going to circle back to um, anabolic steroids and testosterone. They're, they are controlled substances. You just educated us that in 1990, that is what happened. And these, the goal is to control these substances because they have a potential for abuse. Help me understand how these compounds are abused, if they are. So, uh, yeah, so the the DEA and the um, U.S. Code talks about abuse and dependency. And so when we look at controlled substances, they are they are drugs, substances that are uh, have a potential for abuse and dependency. And the greater the de- the dependency potential and the greater the likelihood of abuse, the higher in the schedule of one to five that the drug is placed. So for example, marijuana currently remains at schedule one, which means it can't even be prescribed federally because it's uh, of its potential for abuse and dependency and, and a perception that it has no medical benefits. Uh, under, I understand that many, many state uh, legislatures and, and you know state laws have found quite to the contrary. Um, and steroids are schedule three, um, federally and in the vast majority of states, although in New York, interestingly, uh, anabolic steroids and testosterone are Schedule Two. Now, why New Yorkers would have a higher risk of abuse and dependency of testosterone than somebody in New Jersey is something <laughs> that you know I think the New York legislature would have to explain to us. But but that's that's sort of the the way it works. Um, and yeah, I mean traditional. Controlled substances are cocaine and heroin and methamphetamine and oxycodone, the sorts of narcotics and other drugs that people get addicted to because of their psychoactive effects. I like to say that anabolic steroids and testosterone are the only drug that wound up in the Controlled Substances Act, not so much because of what they do bad to people who use them, but because of what they do well for people who use them. And to understand why that is, you have to go back a couple of years before 1990 to the mid to late 1980s when Congress started to hear about the use of anabolic steroids in organized sports, both at the Mm -hmm. professional level and at the amateur level. And so reports of uh, use in, in some of the big four sports And ultimately, in the Olympics, started um, creating interest within members of Congress. And so hearings were held in the late 80s. And then in 1988, a Canadian by the name of Ben Johnson, a sprinter, Mm -hmm. became the fastest man alive, broke the records, and won at the Seoul Olympics in 1988, and then tested positive for an anabolic steroid called Winstrel, or Mm -hmm. stenozolol. And suddenly the sports world was turned on its head. Congress was extremely uh, upset about the idea that sports could become a chemical warfare contest, that here the Canadian had beaten the American, Carl Lewis, because he had cheated by the use of this anabolic steroid. And so Congress took action. Uh, Some laws were passed. Uh, ultimately leading to the law in 1990, which relegated anabolic steroids to controlled substance status. And there was some 
um, testimony there uh, about the potential for addiction and dependency. It was largely a theory that was presented at that time. There have been uh, studies since then that would show that uh, some of those who use anabolic steroids do show signs of uh, dependency, um, but it's a very different kind of dependency than most other controlled substances, for sure. The majority of the witnesses who testified before Congress that led to the enactment of the steroid law were in sports. They were mm -hmm. folks from organized sports who and athletics who were uh, concerned about the use of these drugs in a way that would make unfair competition um, a, a bigger problem that would create a quote-unquote unlevel playing field. And so Congress, more because of the the what, what steroids do well, which is they can make you bigger, stronger, and faster and perform better in certain types of sports. And so for that reason, primarily, in my opinion, uh, steroids were relegated to controlled substance status. I mean, what's kind of surprising about that is how, how broad... Um, how broad the enactment was. If the primary issue was a sports problem, um, why was it not possible just to solve that problem through testing of those who engage in those particular sports? These are the rules um, for what we want to do. And if you violate the rules, you will not get a trophy. And indeed, there may even be appetite from the public to allow a free-for-all where anybody could compete using whatever they want, but everybody would know transparently what the rules of the game were, or if there are no rules. I mean, it sounds like a sports problem as opposed to a, a health problem. Am I missing something here? Well, I think there's, there was an opportunity for members of Congress to take a firm moral position on cheating. Uh, there was also talk not only about you know, cheating in sports and, the, and the, the ethical components of it, but the idea that young athletes, would, if they felt that the professional and high-level athletes were using steroids uh, in sports to um, achieve uh, wins, that that would be demoralizing and would have a terrible effect on young people. And so there was a lot of talk about saving the children, so to speak. And that's something that no politician uh, has ever shied away from, uh, great PR. And But you're right. Uh, certainly, you it could have been done simply by better testing in sports, stronger um, control of doping in sports uh, without criminalizing it for everybody. But Congress took the much broader approach, made it easy. Just uh, we'll just declare it illegal. Um, and that will that will make it clear that we don't like it. And we're taking a firm stand against it. One of the great ironies, though, is that although the primary focus in the hearings that led to the controlled substance status of, of testosterone and other anabolic steroids was the use in sports and competitive athletics, mm -hmm. studies have shown that the vast majority of illicit users, and by illicit I mean for non-medical reasons, people who are getting it over the internet or, or um, from other sources other than for legitimate medical purposes, the vast majority don't compete in any sport. 
Testosterone and anabolic steroids are primarily cosmetic drugs. They are used predominantly by people who want to look better, and mostly men who want to look better on the beach or without a shirt. Um, and we can argue about whether any drug is safe to use outside the parameters of a physician-patient relationship. Certainly, we wouldn't want to encourage that. Um, but the reality is that the vast majority of users are folks that just want to look better. Uh, and the law since 1990 forbids doctors from prescribing steroids or testosterone for that purpose because that's deemed non-medical. And, and most states have similar laws that followed the federal law. And in some states, the statutes actually have written into, the, into their codes that bodybuilding and muscle enhancement in an otherwise healthy adult is not considered a valid medical use and is therefore illegal for a doctor uh, to distribute or prescribe. What's fascinating is that there are a host of medical options where the goal is entirely and totally cosmetic. The, you know, the aesthetic surgical industry is built upon that premise, and I could imagine how it could be connected, in theory, to sports performance. So imagine for a second that you are a world-class uh, cyclist and you're a pretty damn good climber in the Alps and the Pyrenees. And for each of these people, shaving off, you know, 500 mm -hmm. grams off your body is going to make your watts per kilogram so much better. And these these races are won, you know, in seconds, you know, or milliseconds. Right. So, right. I mean, the, the margin of victory is pretty tight. Can you I'm, I'm just trying to imagine what would happen if one guy just said, um, look, I got um, two pounds in each one of my love handles, although most cyclists have no love handles, but they just took it right off right before uh, the event with enough time to be able to recover. And so they just shaved off four pounds, entirely cosmetic, if you will. But the real goal is performance, no drugs, mm -hmm. it was a surgical procedure. Um, my point is, is that there's no end to this. You can, um, I could imagine a, a thousand different scenarios where there's some medical intervention or mm -hmm. even we'll call it non-medical. So for example, um, those who train um, at altitude and then go to sea level seem to perform just a little bit better. It sure. may not be enough, but you know, not everybody has access to a high altitude uh, a chamber to, uh, to sleep in or to, uh, or, or to train in. And not everybody lives, you know, in, uh, you know, at 10,000 feet. Of, by the way, when I was a medical student, I participated in a high altitude study in Leadville, Colorado. It was the highest, mm. it was the highest, um, I, I guess I'll call it a hospital. It only had about 10 beds in it at the time. Okay. Yeah. And it, um, you know, they used it, they used to do high altitude studies there. And I, I came from Houston, Texas, which is sea level. And so this is almost 9,000 or 10,000 feet. And the first day I get there, I think, well, I'm going to grab a swim at the YMCA. And I was comfortable swimming 3,000 yards without any difficulty. Um, I couldn't go more than two lengths, you know, without um, being winded just because there was right. no friggin' air up there. So, yeah, um, I remember training in, in Denver, uh, you know, just flew in and was trying to catch a workout and wound up, you know, every, after every set, I had to sit down on the bench and take a little, a little breather.
um, yes. because I just wasn't getting the oxygen. But but you're right. I mean, in general, there are inconsistencies between what's allowed and what's not allowed under the rules of sport. And there's also inconsistencies in terms of what's allowed and what's not allowed in terms of aesthetics, right? So one one great irony is if I went to a doctor and said, Doc, my calves won't grow no matter how much time I spend in the gym and mm-hmm. my my pectoral muscles just won't grow, I'd like you to prescribe me some anabolic steroids for that purpose. The doctor mm-hmm. would shoo me out, um, get out of this office, because obviously that would be a felony for him to prescribe for that purpose. Mm-hmm. But if I were to then go down the hall to the plastic surgeon and say, Doc, I'd like you to put some prosthetic implants into my chest and legs so that uh, my the appearance of my chest and, and my calves will simulate what, what, what steroids <laughs> yes. might have done for them. They'll sign me up for an appointment. Yeah, it's I guess we could um, we could debate the logic behind laws, but the law is the law. And at the end of the day, when you're before a judge, the judge may throw his hands up in the air and say, I hear you. I get it. I don't write the rules. Congress writes the laws and the president signs them. Uh, I just have to unfortunately enforce the law and you got screwed. So I apologize for the inconsistencies here. So it behooves us to know what the law is and at least figure out how to stay within the contours uh, of what is allowed right. and what is not allowed. Absolutely. Correct? And and obviously our our conversation here is not deemed to be legal advice. It's you know as lawyers we always give our disclaimers that yep. um this is this is legal information but not legal advice. But you're absolutely right and the the truth is whether we agree with any particular law or don't agree with it if it's clear on its face, we need to abide by it. And that goes for physicians and lawyers and, uh, of course, anybody who's using steroids or thinking of using steroids for reasons other than what the law allows. Obviously, there can be sometimes situations where the law was not intended to uh, act in the way that it was. Um, but I don't think that's so much the case with steroids. I think that the Congress took a shorthand approach and said, look, we're going to get steroids out of sports in an easy way. We're going to make it easy for the folks in um, organized athletics by just making it illegal, and that'll be the end of it. But of course, the irony is that was in 1990. And if you look back, Jeff, and you say, well, you know, did that get steroids out of sports? You know, the answer is a resounding no, because Subsequent to that, we had everything from uh, Lance Armstrong's scandal to the Balco scandal to the Major League Baseball scandal. And I represented the chemist in the Balco case. If you remember back, um, the there was a, yeah. a Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative that uh, was catering to high-level athletes and that there were some designer substances that were steroidal, including something that was typically called uh, the clear and something that was called the cream. Uh, the clear was a was a hybridized molecule that was uh, because it was a, a synthetically created molecule that hadn't been studied before. It didn't show up on standard doping tests. Mm-hmm. So that was the that was the liquid that uh, Barry Bonds um, claimed he thought was flaxseed oil, and he was drinking that. And and the cream 
was a mix of testosterone and epitestosterone uh, in the right ratio so that an athlete could increase his or her testosterone level um, without skewing the ratio between testosterone and epitestosterone, which would trigger a, a doping positive. So um, as it relates, so with sports, the problem never went away. But I think the, the next question is, were the rules or the laws um, harmonized across all the countries? Because many of these sports activities are international events. So while the U.S. may have solved its own problem with a message to the country, did every country follow suit in harmony? Meaning that if you went to Mexico, Canada, mm -hmm. um, UK, I guess I'll even bring in Russia, where the rules and the laws. Well, <laughs> funny you mentioned Russia because yeah. obviously the most recent massive scandal was was the Russian doping scandal, and um, and there was a, a documentary you can pull up on YouTube about that recently. Icarus. But, um, oh yeah, I got right. to plug That's Icarus. Right. And the thing about Icarus, when you first start watching it, do you think it's kind of a feel-good story about um, a cyclist trying to do something and he stumbles across a international controversy where his life is in danger right. and I mean right. it, it actually is it was one of the most riveting documentaries I've seen in a decade phenomenal documentary enjoyed it tremendously um, if we're given plugs for documentaries I'll, I'll throw out a, another one called bigger stronger faster which was a 2008 documentary by a filmmaker by the name of Chris Bell. It's about anabolic steroids in every aspect of American life, sports, medicine, um, culture, uh, you name it. Uh, I'm, I'm in it. So, uh, you can, you can awesome. see more than my, just hearing my radio voice. You can, you can see me speaking in it. And, um, it's, it's a great primer for folks who want to really, wrap their head around a lot of these issues and some of these issues of what is cheating and what is not cheating in sports are really explored in Bigger, Stronger, Faster. And you can get it on Netflix. Oh, perfect. No, this is great. So, I mean, are the laws the same across all the countries for all compounds? Does, does every country put its own fingerprint on this? Well, the World Anti-Doping Code uh, applies throughout the, the world for um, international sports competition, Olympic competition. So there's supposed to be uniformity there. Uh, but different countries have different approaches. So, for example, in Canada, anabolic steroids and testosterone, uh, mere possession of them for personal use is not a crime. Uh, unlike in the United States, where in some states, if you have just a small personal use amount of an anabolic steroid without a valid prescription, you're committing a felony. So the U.S. typically has a much more draconian approach mm -hmm. to drugs in general. Um, so Canada is much lighter. The U.K. is also much lighter. Uh, but there are also uh, countries where there there's some aggressive uh, actions going on. So, for example, there are some Scandinavian countries where the anti-doping officials and the law enforcement officials are connected, sometimes within the same infrastructure. And so somebody who tests positive in a doping test then has law enforcement show up with a search warrant at their home mm. for criminal charges to grow out of their their doping offense. Um, 
in in some Scandinavian countries, they actually have a division of gyms where gyms that do not permit and do testing for performance enhancing drugs put a, a smiley face on their gym and gyms that don't put a frowny face on the gym. <laughs> and so uh, if you're law enforcement and you're looking for people who are abusing steroids, you know exactly where to find them. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's some crazy stuff. There's something uh, called muscle profiling in, in some countries um, in Scandinavia where the appearance of hypermuscularity is deemed to be probable cause for an arrest on suspicion of doping. And the individual can then be forced to take a urine test to determine whether they are using illegal doping substances. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine that would pass constitutional muster here in the U.S., but that idea, it's, it's analogizing to stopping somebody in their car and if the if the police officer sees bloodshot eyes, smells alcohol on the breath, uh, that you know certain indicia indicia of intoxication mm -hmm. would be a basis for arresting that person. That actually is is analogized to the situation where if you have you know 20 inch arms and a and a 54 inch chest with you know 8% body fat you're coming with me we're going down to the station house and there was a somewhat celebrated case in Sweden where it was a young a young guy who had very very developed trapezius muscles so his he's got had these huge trap muscles and a female cop on the street sees him and walks up and starts engaging him in conversation. Uh, she was, as I understand, she was in plain clothes. So he probably thought he was, you know, maybe maybe getting lucky with this young lady. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it didn't go that way because the next thing he knows, he's hauled down to the station house on suspicion of doping. And he was forced to take a urine test, which he passed. Kid just had really big trapezius muscles, uh, you know, naturally big trapezius muscles. And there was some um, news and, and media, um, you know, discussion and debate as to whether that really is what we want to be doing with people, whether this was a, uh, a legitimate use of, of police resources. And I think the general consensus in that country was that, that it is that the scourge of doping of testosterone and anabolic steroids is, is so great that we're willing to sacrifice some individual liberties for that purpose. That has to be a reflection of how low the general crime rate is that is in that country. <laughs> Meaning that if rape, murder, robbery doesn't exist and they still need a reason to be officers. <laughs> to justify the budget? <laughs> yeah, I mean um, – it, it just seems like the natural next step, and I'm, <clears throat> I'd have to um, freshen up with old medical texts, but I do believe there are some medical conditions where the muscle will hypertrophy. They call it pseudo-hypertrophy, and I'd have to um, see what, what that is, but you can well imagine there are just some underlying medical conditions where somebody has a collection of muscles in particular parts of the body where they just are extremely large. Uh, unrelated right. to anything that they're taking or unrelated to any exercise or activity that they're doing. And of course, I mean, do you really want to criminalize that or deem people to be guilty until they prove that they're innocent? It seems right. seems very heavy handed uh, to me. It, it is. It is. You know, back here in the U.S., 
um, federal regulations are that uh, any controlled substance, including testosterone or steroids, can only be prescribed or, or dispensed for a, quote, legitimate medical purpose in the, quote, usual course of professional practice. So for physicians, that's that's sort of the the buzz phrases for what they need to abide by. So a prescription that's written for an illegitimate purpose, a non-medical purpose, or outside the usual course of professional practice would be an invalid prescription. And most states follow that. There are differences in what is considered an anabolic steroid for the purposes of controlled substance status state by state. So, for example, there are some states where human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG, mm-hmm. is classified as an anabolic steroid, even though it's, it's chemically not, it's classified that way in a minority of states. So uh, physicians need to know their state laws in order to know what is controlled and what is not controlled. Um, now, just be mindful, though, that when Congress took this action in 1990 and then it amended the laws in t- 2004 and 2014 to kind of expand the the reach of these anabolic steroid control acts at least in 1990 this was long before the creation of a, a medical discipline or or subcategory of medicine called age management medicine or anti-aging mm-hmm. medicine um didn't really exist in 1990 it was it was in the years later <clears throat> that doctors began to look at at this concept of andropause, as it it came to be known, this idea that over time, uh, secondary hypogonadism, low testosterone, um, can be linked with the aging process. So that men, as they age, uh, go through a decline in hormones. And studies obviously show that after around the age of 30 or so, there's a gradual decrease year by year in the average serum testosterone levels for for men. Uh, it's not like menopause in women where it's it's sort of a sudden onset. It, it's a much more gradual thing. And so doctors began to recognize that that maybe these men who had low testosterone levels were in need of replenishing, replacing, that testosterone. And so the idea of testosterone replacement therapy began to emerge in the years after Congress had initially made steroids and testosterone a controlled substance. So these are compounds that would have a legitimate medical use prescribed by a doctor for a specific indication. So let's talk briefly about what an age management clinic might need to do. So if a person comes in there with an end goal, perhaps, of um, getting testosterone because they believe somehow they are deficient clinically, they would need to articulate clinical symptoms and or have lower levels than normal. And then the next question would be lower for their age cohort or lower for a 20-year-old? Now, I asked you about four questions there in one. Right. Yes, and and they're all they're they're all great questions. Um, you know, years ago I was I had to meet a client in court, and I never um, uh, I had I had met him only once, and um, 
the uh, he was describing me to uh, to his wife who was looking for for where I was in the courthouse, and and he described me as a handsome fireman. I looked like a handsome fireman. I I, I awesome. don't see it necessarily, and I certainly don't. You know, I, I wouldn't ascribe to the handsome. I think that's in the eye of the beholder for sure. But but when he said fireman, it's ironic because. I do consider myself in the in the context of these sorts of situations as sort of the the fireman that you call. So if mm. if a doctor is threatened with a disciplinary proceeding in the area of hormone replacement, testosterone, growth hormone, um, any sorts of uh, anabolic steroid compounds, anything like that. Uh, or if there's a criminal charge or criminal investigation of any kind, I'm the guy that you should be on speed dial. I'm the guy when the house is burning, I'll come rushing in with my with my helmet and my hose. The what I don't do typically you don't is, even have to be handsome. You'll just do it, right? Right. Yeah, they're happy to see me as ugly as I am. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, um, so what I don't do is I don't typically tell doctors where to put the smoke detectors or where to put the fire alarms or or give them sort of a blueprint for how to set up an age management practice because there's so many variables and I've seen doctors get jammed up in a variety of different ways. I can tell you that testosterone replacement therapy remains controversial to this day and I and I attribute it to to sort of loop back I attribute it to the connection with ethical issues, with the cheating, with the athletes, with the Ben Johnson. All of that sort of poisoned the well. And we now have a situation where TRT has has sort of two schools of thought. On the one hand, you've got age management doctors who have many patients who swear by TRT and um and and say it's it's rejuvenated them and they feel fantastic and I have many many personal contacts and and clients who would attest to that. You've also got mainstream endocrinological orthodoxy, and that is a much more skeptical approach to TRT. And the FDA has taken a very skeptical approach. In 2014, the FDA actually issued a public safety alert saying that TRT um, has a increased risk of stroke, heart attack, and death. Um, in 2015, FDA required label changes so that there was an increased uh, risk, a uh, warning about the possibility of increased cardiovascular risks. And as you may know, there's been literally thousands of class action lawsuits consolidated in Chicago against the manufacturers of testosterone, predominantly the, the gels, mm-hmm. um, for two things. One, for failing to warn about these testosterone uh, stroke, heart attack, and death risks. And secondly, the idea that the marketing was for off-label purposes. In other words, that andropause doesn't really exist. And if you remember, there used to be commercials. Is it low T was a uh, an advertising television campaign which suggested that men who were getting to a certain age and who 
weren't feeling as much spring in their step and maybe weren't performing as well, either in the gym or in the bedroom, that they should ask their doctor about low T. And these lawsuits are based on the idea that this is a bunch of bunk and that there is really no andropause that's worth treating and that the vast majority of men who have these age-related declines in testosterone, either free or total, uh, should not be treated. And that's sort of the, the classic endocrinological orthodox position now, and it remains to this day, um, although certainly those in age management would say that's insane. And there was recently a, um, a piece that appeared in a journal, Androgens, Clinical Research and Therapeutics. It just came out like six weeks ago. And it's worth reading if you're a physician in this area because it's sort of the rebuttal to FDA's position on testosterone therapy and age-related hypogonadism, age-related low testosterone, and it is the con. It's age-related testosterone deficiency should not be treated. Well, here's the rebuttal. Here's the, um, the response to that. And it's written by a doctor from the Boston University School of Medicine. Um, and it is a researched and learned response that basically says, that there's really no difference between secondary and you know, primary um, hypogonadism. And who cares why you've got low testosterone levels? If your levels are low and you're symptomatic, well, then doctors should, should be able to prescribe for that. So that is the, the rebuttal position. It's not it's certainly the mainstream position within age management, but it is not the mainstream endocrinological, uh, mainstream medicine position. And so we still have this sort of disparity in approach to what what is TRT and when is it appropriate? You know, we've got a, a scale, roughly, let's say, 300 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter, of what's considered quote unquote normal and you know but the devil's in the details right what if a patient is symptomatic is is you know has all the signs of hypogonadism in in both in mood and physically mm -hmm. but they're at 400 you know uh they're in the normal level they're, they're in the normal range uh a uh conservative conventional endocrinologist might say no 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 you're you're that you can't be treated with this whereas an age management doctor might say but wait a minute how do we know last year you might have been at 500 and the year before you were at 600 and the year before you were at 700 yes it's it's all within the normal range but you're feeling the effects of this diminished testosterone and that's evidenced by your symptoms. Why shouldn't you be prescribed? And so um, these are issues that are still being wrestled with um, as things move forward. But uh, doctors should check out this uh, journal article and, and others because uh, it really makes a, a good case for why the conservative endocrinological community is just 20 years behind the times. Well, I... So most um, medications that are tested and sent for approval by the Food and Drug Administration, 
end up with a label. The label is what the manufacturer, the sponsor of the drug can market the compound for, meaning that it's for a particular indication using a particular dose to treat a particular uh, range of symptoms uh, or diseases, et cetera. And then the right. FDA blesses it and says, you can market it as such. Now, doctors are, of course, are generally free to prescribe as they see fit once the drug is approved and it goes onto the market. We call that silent label. Some people call it off-label. I like the word silent label because mm-hmm. it, it really, it never has been tested. Off-label typically has this ugly and pejorative connotation. Um, right. But I guess the question is, if a doctor wanted to be exceedingly safe in terms of prescribing testosterone um, and they adhered strictly to the label and just said, I'm prescribing this particular dose to this particular patient according to the label, should they not feel reasonably comfortable that they would be the least likely individual to be beaten up uh, by the Board of Medicine or the legal establishment? You know, I've I've seen physicians get jammed up for all sorts of kind of stupid stuff. Um, Some of it was kind of silly. Um, Some of it was more legitimate. Um, You know, I've represented physicians who, what happens sometimes in in some of these TRT clinics or uh, men's health practices uh, sometimes they'll get younger patients who are looking for testosterone. Sometimes they will mm-hmm. um, uh, agree to doses that are outside what would be replacement doses. Sometimes they have prescribed steroids other than testosterone. So, for example, nandrolone or oxandrolone uh, mm-hmm. without really a justification that could be articulated. Um, sometimes you know, TRT clinics become flooded with cops who are, you know, or other, the others who are in physical sorts of businesses or occupations um, and and may not be folks who need it for medical reasons, but but are kind of looking for it for um, non-medical reasons. Sometimes medical licensing boards will look at, well, what ancillary drugs are being prescribed? I've seen problems arise where some medical licensing boards will look at things like anastrozole or tamoxifen, which are ways of controlling some side effects of uh, estrogenic type side effects from from, uh, testosterone or or anabolic steroid use. And they'll look at that as indicative that it was more of a bodybuilding style of prescribing than for a medical purpose. Doctors just need to stay within the bounds of medical use. It has to be for a legitimate medical purpose. And anything that suggests that it's for something other than that, that it's for appearance, that it's for performance in sports or anything like that, is going to potentially put that physician on on the radar screen. So at the very least, there needs to be a clinical indication for this that is documented. If the indication is, look, I just want to feel better, but it doesn't really describe what that means to feel better. But Mm -hmm. certainly it could be if you're lethargic and impotent, those would be two reasons where you could check the boxes 
as it relates to a clinical problem with a potential pharmacologic solution as opposed to um, I just want to look better on the beach. Well, it's funny because uh, very often I've, I've seen in a number of situations where if a doctor gets on the radar screen as sort of being looked at as sort of a steroid mill, right, where where people can go if they want testosterone and you you basically with a wink and a, and a nod, you're going to walk out with a prescription. Um, I've seen undercover cops and agents sent in and recording the conversation. Uh, that that the um, undercover has with the physician, and saying things that are that are not not overtly obvious. Hey, doc, I, I just want to look better on the beach. It won't be quite so obvious, but it'll be they're experienced enough to come close to some veneer of legitimacy. And maybe even over the course of a few visits, little by little, make it more overt. And, of course, recording all of it for the purposes of making a case. So, um, And doctors have been uh, prosecuted for this um, and, and also had medical licensing problems. So um, the so bottom line is... Uh, you know, again, I, I don't talk about where to put the smoke detectors or, or you know, the, the mechanics or blueprint for, for how to stay out of trouble. I could certainly give a, a long list of, of examples of things that doctors did that got them in trouble, um, sort of the don't do list. And, you know, that list does, you know, include everything from ultimately from not not documenting um, the the purposes of the prescription to uh, sloppy handwriting to not keeping patient records um, you know the whole long list certainly if the patient is a competitive athlete if the patient is 22 years old if the patient you know is is a cop or a, a fireman you know all of those sorts of things, you know, maybe standing alone in a, in a given instance could be justified, but if it becomes a pattern, it makes it more likely that that physician ultimately will be looked at um, as a as a potential target. And with the lawsuits that have been filed, there are folks who, you know, look, a certain number of men who are not on testosterone are going to have heart attacks. That's just the way it is. Right. And a certain number of men who are on TRT are also going to have heart attacks. And if the man is on TRT and has a heart attack, it may be that he or his family will immediately try to blame the TRT. We live in an incredibly litigious society, and everybody wants to blame something for the purposes of a lawsuit. And so, um, and so. Doctors need to protect themselves with informed consents and with making sure that they abide by um, the communities, uh, the, the practices within the community that make for good medicine and that it's within the usual scope of the professional practice of, of the physician and that it's for a legitimate medical purpose. I mean, so, it just goes back to the principle of just practice good medicine, document it, and you do you do recognize that with all of these clinics popping up across the country, men's health, age management clinics, those are going to be magnets 
for particular types of patients that truly want this type of replacement therapy. And I would only, I can only imagine that those types of entities, unless they have good procedures in place, um, would probably be at higher risk than a bread and butter family practice doc who occasionally sees such a patient. My advice is practice good medicine. And if the if there's uh, signs of smoke, call me <laughs> immediately. Have have me on speed dial before the fire starts. Um, before we finish, I'm going to get. I want your phone number and your website that we'll put on there. We still have a few more questions to go. But what above and beyond just a clinical indication? There's certainly laboratory testing, and the amount of free testosterone would certainly be one indicator as as to whether a patient is clinically deficient. But you just made the point that over time, all men decrease in their uh, free testosterone level. So what is, you know, what is normal for a 20-year-old, you're looking at lower levels in a 40, 50, 60-year-old person. If declination is the expected tendency, then the question ultimately becomes, is normal normal for your age cohort, or is it normal based on an entire population not taking into account age? Because if we right. look at other conditions, and let's look at um, blood glucose, let's look at blood mm-hmm. pressure, let's look at cholesterol, let's look at bone density, those things also change <laughs> with time. I wish they didn't, but they do. Right. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, it, 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 there's that. an ideological or a philosophical kind of uh, issue that, that your question brings up, and that is, you know, whether it is nobler, so to speak, to uh, go naturally, to let ourselves go the way nature intended, and if nature intended us to have diminishing testosterone levels over time, um, then, then that's that's the way it should be. And I think the the FDA's position on TRT and and to some degree the conventional endocrinological position is that that is the way it's supposed to be. And this isn't you know a legal issue. This is I think just an, a philosophical issue. And there are those who believe that I'm gonna I'm gonna grow old gracefully and naturally. Um, you know, there's a different way of looking at that. And, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, and the reality is Mm -hmm. nature really doesn't care about us as individuals, right? Nature Mm -hmm. cares about the propagation of the gene. Mm -hmm. Nature is all about continuing the species, and we are programmed so that we will will at, at some point have offspring so that the genes will be replicated in a new individual. Once that's done, there's an argument that nature really doesn't care about us all that much, right? I mean, at some point, particularly after we've raised that offspring until they're viable on their own, after that, you know, we're kind of just consuming the scarce resources of the planet. And so our levels go down, our sex drive diminishes, our teeth fall out, our hair falls out, we grow hair in our ears, where we lose our muscle mass, you know, all of the things that gradually make it more palatable to climb into the grave over time. And that's, I think, 
there's certainly an argument that that's that's what nature really wants. Nature doesn't care about you as an individual. It doesn't care about Jeff. It cares about Jeff's genes moving forward to the next generation. And so maybe the interests of the individual and the interests of nature are not compatible. Maybe, in fact, the individual has a completely different set of priorities than nature has. And if there are approaches that will enable the individual to feel better or to maintain the vigor of youth for a longer period of time than nature would ever have intended, given its interests, then why the heck wouldn't we do that? And that, I think, is sort of the approach of of age management as a philosophy. And there's certainly... Uh, those who agree with it and those who disagree with it. And that, I think, is the essence of of the philosophical debate on TRT. Well, we're going to see more and more of this as the ability to manage age improves. I, I already see clinics popping up and research being done on using an old diabetic drug to um, promote longevity, metformin, uh, as one example. Generic compound, it costs a penny or less. Uh, rapamycin, which is an immunomodulator, uh, which also apparently has effects that many people are taking. And not only does, is there some evidence perhaps that it improves longevity, but it also improves function, meaning that people who take it seem to get sick less frequently. They get the flu less often. If they get the flu, it tends not to be uh, as severe. And I'm sure this is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, historically, the FDA has only allowed compounds to be approved if they treated some condition, something mm-hmm. that makes you ill, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or a proxy for that, meaning that will take down your uh, cholesterol level as a proxy for atherosclerosis. But the FDA has never really taken the position or allowed compounds through to promote longevity. And I don't know whether that's an FDA problem that needs attention uh, long term or whether this will never be regulated. Well, I think what you're suggesting is is sort of the broader discussion of what Western medicine and, and criticism of Western medicine, right? It's disease based, mm-hmm. so that you, you walk into the doctor's office and if if you, how you, how you feeling? I feel great. You know, I'd love to feel even better, but but I feel great. Well, then there's nothing I can do for you. It becomes sort of the classic doctor interaction with the most you know, uh, orthodox physician there. It's not so much about making you healthier. It's, you know, finding something wrong with you mm-hmm. that we can now treat. And and I think criticism of Western medicine, I'm not saying this, this is, you know, Google it, you know, it, it, is that it's so disease-based that it's not wellness-based and that it's not mm-hmm. looking forward into issues like feeling better now, feeling better as we age living longer, um, all of those things are sort of outside the scope of, you know, you've got a broken arm, I'll set it. You've got high blood pressure, I'll give you a pill for that. You've got diabetes, I'm going to prescribe you insulin. Um, that's classic medicine. And, and you know, I, I think we're we're perhaps on the precipice of beginning to, in a more mainstream way, rethink that. Rick, we're gonna. Um, I wish we had had time today to talk about human growth hormone, 
we're, you're going to come back. I, I hope the answer is yes. You will come back and we'll talk about prescribing of human growth hormone before. If, it, if I, invited, I will come. So yeah, very yeah, good, uh, very good. We've had a, I've had a good time chatting with you it's and yeah, quickly. But the the one <laughs> question I have for you um, is a question that we sometimes get from physicians. If mm-hmm. they get an unannounced knock on their door from yeah. the DEA. What should Ouch. they do kind of broadly? I mean, or more importantly, what shouldn't they do? I mean, there's a tendency to want to appear as cooperative as, as possible, open up the yeah. door, say, look around, I'll, I'll go away for three hours and just have at it. Um, yeah. But I'm going to guess that you're going to say there's probably a better way initially to handle yep. that after calling. Yeah. So, so uh, have me on speed dial, and uh, you'll give my my number before we're done, and yes. and call me immediately. Um, obviously, if if the DEA shows up with a search warrant, uh, they're going to search, and they're going they have they're going to go through records, they're going to take computers, they're going to take things uh, from the office. Um, there's no reason to make any statements, and so uh, putting on my criminal defense lawyer hat. Um, you know, nobody needs to either make a statement or consent to a search without a search warrant or other uh, lawful authority. So the best thing to say in any interaction where the police are, are interacting with you in a way that is based on their suspicion of something that you may have done wrong, whether or not you did something wrong, is simply, I'd love to have a nice long chat with you and discuss everything about your concerns. Mm-hmm. But I have a lawyer, Rick Collins. He's the smartest guy in the room. Love this guy. Uh, give me your number and he will call you immediately. I think it's perfect. And now that we're talking about phone numbers, Rick, magic moment. Give everyone your phone number and they'll stick it in Sure. Speed yeah. So so put me on speed dial at 516-294-0300. Um, I've had cases all across the U.S. I'm licensed in New York, Pennsylvania, Texas, Massachusetts, D.C., uh, and I've had cases in many, many other places uh, where I've worked with lawyers uh, literally across the country. Um, if you want to read a little bit more, you can go to my website at steroidlaw, steroidlaw.com. Um, and, um, and again, you know, I'm, I'm not the guy to call to set up the blueprint. How do I start an anti-aging business? There are lawyers who can who can help you with that. I'm the lawyer that you call when when the house is is when there's some smoke coming out of the house and the potential fire is there. Particularly if the first lawyer didn't give you the perfect blueprint on how to stay out of trouble, right? Well, that's that's where I can come in as well because uh, poor legal advice is uh, can be a defense in certain circumstances, as you know. Rick, thanks for joining us today. I know you'll come back, and I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'd love to. Thanks so much. Have a great day. This is the Medical Liability Minute. Thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye. Before we end, don't forget to reach out to Medevolve. For those of us who know how hard it is to build and maintain a sustainable business, we understand that bringing the right solutions to achieve our goals is key. Go to www.drpodcastnetwork.com slash Medevolve, that's spelled M-E-D-E-V-O-L-V-E, and get on the path to transparency, automation, and accountability in your revenue cycle. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. 
If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.